before we get uh, too far into things, I want to make a special invitation to you. Um, it's been said that good fences make good neighbors, and we have a desire next week to be good neighbors. Um, if you, in case you don't know, we have a group of houses on the south side of our campus, and as our campus gets larger and as our church gets larger and as our children spill out into our field area, we can be a little noisy and ruckus to our neighbors. And so what we're wanting to do is build a hedge uh, between our campus and what we're just going to call the river. You might call it a gutter. We're going to call it a river because it sounds nicer. And so what we want to do is plant probably 25 trees along that fence line over here. And what we think that will do is help prevent our noise and our light and our fun from negatively influencing our neighbors. But we could use your help. We have a lot of holes to dig with mechanical assistance. If you are someone who loves digging holes or filling holes, we could certainly use your help Next Saturday, May 27th from 9 to noon, uh, Scott Harwood, one of our elders and our facilities manager, he'll be there. You don't need to know any special skills, but if you can help me out by helping them out, by helping us out, planting these trees, hopefully five years from now, everyone will be happier. Next Saturday, 9 to noon, all you need to bring is gardening tools, gloves, and a willing spirit, and we'll have everything else for you. Um, and we have other serve opportunities. You can just go on the webpage, go on the app, and you can sign up for those. Otherwise, next Saturday, just show up, 9 to noon. Love to have you there. As we're prepping uh, for our study in Malachi, I was thinking about a question this week I want to pass on to you. When you think about justice, what comes to mind? When you think about that battle between right and wrong, what picture comes to mind? If you're in my generation, the picture that might come to mind is the Justice League. I grew up with stories of the super friends and the hall of justice, and you have these super powered individuals who can find the bad guys, and the bad guys always lose, and the good guys always win by the end of the comic book or the end of the cartoon. Maybe you're not from my generation, maybe you're from my dad's generation. You think about justice, you think about John Wayne. Roy Rogers, the singing cowboy with his trusty steed trigger, who will always, when, when there's trouble, they'll ride in and solve the problems. Regardless of your generation, we tend to have the same image of justice. We tend to have the same storyline work Within our mind, the storyline goes something like this. The beginning of the scene, there's a bad guy whose name is something like Bart. That's always their name. It, they look like they haven't shaved for three weeks. They usually have bad teeth and may or may not have a patch over one eye. And this bad guy named Bart is trying to rob a bank 
And the police somehow found out, and right when the police arrive, Bart panics, and he needs to find a hostage, and that's at the perfect time where Penelope, they're always a girl named Penelope, she's this amazingly attractive lady who's a librarian, who loves working with orphan kids, who all adopted a little puppy, and they're all walking to the park right at this time where Bart needed a hostage, and he takes Penelope. Penelope, as she gets taken hostage by Bart, the man who hasn't shaved, has bad teeth and a patch over his eye, she screams a scream that echoes through town, that catches the ear of the city hero, who is also in a relationship with Penelope. But they're not boyfriend, girlfriend, because Penelope's torn, right? Between the hero of the town and the city doofus, little does Penelope know they're the same guy. (laughs) Penelope lets out the scream. The hero hears his love scream in terror, so he hops in his fancy car or gets in his invisible jet or hops on his trusty steed, whatever generation you are, and he comes in order to rescue his long-lost love from the bad guy named Bart. Little does the hero know that Bart has a special weapon specifically designed as the only thing that can hurt the hero. And in the midst of the tussle, the hero gets injured by the weapon and suddenly there's a break for a commercial. (laughs) And we're left at that moment with the hero laying down, Bart running off excited that he robbed the bank, stole the girl, and ridded the world of one more hero. And we go into the commercial break, torn in our heart. How can this be? What's going to happen? The bad guy can't win. The good guy can't die. And so we're stuck there riveted to the comic book or the TV show or the movie that we spent $20 to go watch because we have to get finality. And finally, when we get to the end of the show, we realize the good guy hadn't been killed. He was merely faking it. He wanted Bart to think that he was killed. And so the good guy came, surprises Bart. He beats the bad guy, rescues Penelope just as the sun sets and the final music comes in. And everything ends perfectly as it should. Just another day in whatever town they live. Wouldn't it be nice if that's how life was? Wouldn't it be nice? The hero always won. The bad guy always lost. Wouldn't it be nice if good guys were so easy to spot and bad guys were so easy to spot? But that's not how life is, is it? Sometimes the bad guys win. Sometimes the good guys lose. Sometimes trying your hardest isn't good enough. Sometimes you can't do everything that you put your mind to. Sometimes marriages are hard. Sometimes kids don't act the way their mothers taught them. Sometimes government officials make decisions that line their own pockets instead of benefit their constituency. Sometimes life doesn't work out. At the time where it doesn't feel like justice is reigning in your life, what do you do? During those times where your image of what life should be doesn't line up with how life is, how does that impact your faith? 
What do you do in your relationship with God? See, that's the scenario the people of Malachi were in. They're really in a similar spot as we are. They're in a time where their economy wasn't so hot, just like ours. They're in a time where culture was kooky, just like us. They're in a time where their government was corrupt, just like us. They're at a time where their churches were struggling and their worship was waning. They're at a time where their marriages were splitting and their children were leaving the faith. That was a time where they continued to look up to God and asking God, what are you doing? God, will you do a work? They prayed for revival. They sought renewal. They longed for God to do a work and yet they all agreed across the people that God didn't seem to be doing anything about it. It It's at that time that God wrote a letter. God sent a message God spoke through a prophet named Malachi and he gave them what the Bible describes as an oracle, a weighty message, something that's been ruminating and stirring in the heart and soul of God, something that has been burdening him that he needed to get off his chest and so he did in the oracle of Malachi. And through the book of Malachi, we get this weighty message of God and it began with a powerful word where God told his people, I love you and I've always loved you. I loved you when I picked you. I loved you when you were obedient. And I loved you when you were in the midst of rebellion. Through your good times and through your hard times, I have always loved you. But then he turned to his people and he asked a question. Even though I have always loved you, have you always loved me? He began with his priests. I mean, if anyone should understand the plan of God and what God deserved and what God earned and what God desired, it ought to have been them. But their worship was corrupt. Their teachings were false and faithless. Their lives were filled with discontentment and struggle. But it wasn't just the priests, it was also the people. Not only were their temples and their worship filled with corruption, but their homes and their marriages were too. The two institutions designed by God to reflect his glory, his temple, his church, and the home, both were corrupted, both were divided, both were struggling. But in the midst of all of their struggle, in the midst of all their brokenness, in the midst of all their failure, they continue to look up to God and blame him. God, where are you? God, why don't you fix it? God, what are you doing? How come we're struggling like this? How come our economy is bad? How come our government is crazy? How come our culture is broken? How come our homes are struggling? And they continue to look up to God without recognizing their own brokenness. You see, there's a reality, isn't there? Our view of justice is warped, isn't it? In our head, when we look at that story, we're either the hero of the city or we're the innocent damsel Penelope who is taken advantage of by culture or worst case scenario, we're just the innocent bystanders watching life go by. But what if the reality is in the eyes of God, we're like Bart? 
What if the reality is we're not the superhero, we're not the damsel in distress, and we're not the innocent bystander? What if we're the criminal? What is God, what is his response to us? That's where we're going to pick up our story. I'd like to invite you into the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. If you need help finding the book of Malachi, go to the end of the Old Testament. You'll find his word there. Or you can just go to the New Testament and flip to the left. You'll find it eventually. The book of Malachi, we're at the end of chapter 2. After God has already shared his heart that he has always loved his people, after he has confronted religious leaders with their infidelity and he's confronted his people in their infidelity, God says this, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, look at what he said. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. A term wearied, they have worn him out with their constant whining and unfaithfulness. He is exhausted by their demands at the same time that they live consistently disobedient and unfaithful lives. God has had it. He is done. He is through. He is finished. You've worn me out, is God's response. In the midst of all your brokenness, in the midst of all your unfaithfulness, in the midst of all your infidelity, you still whine to me about the brokenness of your life, and God says, I'm done. I love this. He says, yet you say, how have we wearied you? Has that ever happened to your kids? where they have just worn you to the last thread of your sanity and you're about to just explode and they see the crazy in their eyes and they look at you like, what? What did we do? God says, you've wearied me. You've exhausted me. I'm through with you. I'm done. And you say, what? What happened? God says this, and that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. The wicked prosper, the righteous struggle. The bad guys are winning, the good guys are losing. God's lost control. He's no longer sovereign. He doesn't hold everything in his hand. Look how it ends. Where is God of justice? We look up at God and God say, and we say, God, you've lost control. God, you're no longer acting, you're no longer moving. God says, I'm tired of hearing that. And my question, have you ever looked up to God and challenged him with his loss of control of culture or life or justice? The wrong guy wins. And you look up at God and say, where are you? Your spouse fails you. You look up at God and say, where are you? You're in a job where the boss doesn't honor faithfulness, hard work, and honesty. And instead, she honors someone who is unfaithful. And you look up at God and you say, what are you doing? Is God tired of us? I mean, God told them, I'm tired of you, of your constant whining and complaining. I'm exhausted. I'm through. Is that how God feels with us today? That's why I love Malachi chapter 3. Because God gives us 
of promise of righteousness. I love it because it begins with my second favorite word. My first favorite word is but. Second favorite word is behold. Chapter 3, verse 1, first word in my Bible, behold. It means surprise. Every time I see beholds, I circle them. Because what that term behold means is something's about to happen that you're not expecting. Something's about to happen that isn't within your control. Something crazy, miraculous, something of God, something you don't expect is about to occur. See, when God says, I'm done, I'm tired, you've wearied me, I'm exhausted, I'm through with your whining, what we're expecting is judgment. What we're expecting is discipline. What we're expecting is trouble. But instead, look what God says, behold. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The first thing we're going to see is a promise of righteousness. And the first thing he says about that promise promise of righteousness is he says, you won't miss it. He says, you won't miss this promise of righteousness. You won't miss it. He said, I'm going to send my messenger, that term messenger, my herald. Oftentimes back in the day when a king was going to come into town, he'd send a herald ahead to make sure everyone was prepared. Get ready, the king's coming. Clean up the streets. Wash your kids. Pick up the house. Get ready, ready the celebration. The king is coming to town. He says this, I'm going to send my messenger. My herald is going to come and make sure you know the king is coming. Not only that, he says, and he will clear the way before me. That phrase, clear the way. Phrase means God's going to prepare a path. He will empty the way of obstacles. He will ready the road with his people's steps in mind. God says, I'm going to come right when you think discipline is going to come. God says, forget it, I'm coming. I'm going to send my messenger to make sure you all know I'm coming. And I'm going to have him prepare the way, remove the obstacles, get everything out of the way with your steps in mind so you could easily walk it. In other words, God says, I'm going to bring a promise of righteousness and you can't miss it. You won't miss it. says, he will clear away before me and the Lord whom you seek that you wonder if he really is active, if he has forgotten all about you, has he really abandoned you? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, surprise, he's coming. He's coming, says the Lord. And the question is, are you ready? I mean, wouldn't that be a question? I mean, if God is suddenly coming, if the king is suddenly coming, are you prepared? I mean, there's got to be two responses. Some people would be excited that the king would come. People like me, I'd be worried. My house isn't ready for a guest. My kids aren't prepared. Are you ready? God says, just when you think judgment's coming, you have a promise of righteousness. First, you won't miss it. But second, you don't really deserve the presence of the king. Do you know that? Look at what he says, verse two, but, big biblical but, my favorite word. Just when you think, oh, this is great. The king's coming. This will be exciting. But look what God says. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? 
Man, who is capable of standing in the glory and presence of the God of all creation? Who can stand when he appears? You remember throughout scripture when an angel suddenly appears? You know the first thing they always say? Don't be afraid. Because of their appearance, and they're merely reflecting a portion of the glory of God. They're just reflecting God's glory. They have no glory of themselves. They're merely reflecting God's glory, but when they show up, there is such a presence that people drop to their face. Roman soldiers, the baddest dudes of their days, they fainted at the sight of these guys. God says, I'm coming. I'm not sending my angels. My messenger is going to clear the way, but I'm coming. Who can stand it? Who can bear it? Who has the, op- uh, the ability to stand and face the God of all creation? Do you? I love Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he had a, he had a vision. This didn't happen to him. He just saw a vision of the presence of God. And look at his result. Look at what he says. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. When he saw a vision of the presence of God, he said, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm done. I'm a dead man. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only am I broken, all my people are broken. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, Isaiah recognizes, if I'm standing in the presence of God, I'm doomed. I'm done. I can't stand. I can't endure. The promise of righteousness, you won't miss it. But you also don't deserve it. You don't deserve the glory of God. But look at God's solution. It's in the midst of all their brokenness, all their infidelity, all their failures, bringing God to the point of his last resistance where he says, I'm exhausted, I'm wearied, where he ought to judge you. God says, I'm coming, and I know that you can't even endure my presence, so I'm going to fix it. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Fuller soap, it's like, you know how dry cleaners can get stains out of clothes that you can't? Fuller soap, it's like OxyClean that just gets all of those hard to reach stains. It's bleached to the dingy whites of your soul. God says, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna do that. So I'm gonna bring a refiner's fire. Refiner's fire is that fire that's so hot that it melts even metal to liquid form. So all the impurities can be removed. God says, I'm coming. You deserve judgment, but I'm going to bring righteousness. You won't miss it when I come, but you don't deserve what I bring. And so as a result, I'm going to fix it. Look how he describes it. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. That's describing someone who works with silver. Says he's going to refine and purify. I want to make sure you understand the process of purification of metal. 
See, it's a process. It requires very high heat. The silver would be melted down. And then as it's still hot and in its liquid form, the impurities float to the top and you scoop them off. Toss the impurities aside, then you let the metal harden, cool and harden. And then you melt it again. You put it down to its liquid form, you scoop off more of the impurities. You let it cool and harden. And then you melt it again. And it's a cycle over and over and over. A refiner's fire, it takes time. We're so used to microwaves. You put something in, it purifies it like this. That's not your soul. God says, I'm gonna be like a refiner and I'm gonna melt you down, scoop out the impurity, and I'm gonna melt you down again. And scoop out the impurity. I'm gonna do this over and over and over until all of the filth and impurity of your soul is removed by my power. And then I'll refine you. After I purify you, I'm gonna shape you with my own hands. I'm gonna take your filthy vessel and I'm gonna melt it down. I'm gonna take all the impurities out and then I'm gonna reform you into a vessel of honor, to an instrument of glory, a tool for my own work. God says, I'm gonna do all of that. That's his promise of righteousness. His promise of righteousness says, listen, I'm bringing it and you won't miss it, but you don't deserve it. And so I'm going to have to come and I'm going to have to make you clean. Scoop out all your impurities and reform you into an instrument that I can use for my glory. But here's the last part. You won't miss it. You don't deserve it. But you won't regret it. You might think, Brian, that refiner process, that sounds like it takes a lot of time and it might hurt. Yeah, it might. But look at, the, look at the resort, verse four, then. A term then, first word in my Bible, then, it's a term of sequence. After the refinement, after the purification, after God has his way in your soul, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. A term pleasing means to be sweet, useful, acceptable, desirable by God. after two chapters where God is just letting his people have it, you failed me. From religious leaders all the way down to the children, you guys broke the plan. And God says, and I'm exhausted by you. You don't even see it. You blame me for everything. You think I'm the problem in it. God says, I should just wipe the world from you, but instead, When you think judgment's coming, I'm gonna prepare a way, a promise of righteousness. I will come. I'm gonna give you a heads up. I'll let you know I'm coming. And I'm gonna cleanse you and form you in an instrument of glory. And then you and I are gonna have communion. You'll be able to see me face to face and you'll relish it. And I'll be pleased with your life. We go from I'm exhausted by you to I enjoy you and I'm pleased by you. And all of it is as a result of God's work. And some of you might say, Brian, I need that. Brian, I want that. 
But here's the good news. These people in Malachi, they had to wait for it. Not you. See that messenger that Malachi's talking about? He already came. His name was John the Baptist. He came and made everyone know the way, make way for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus came. God came, Paul says in Philippians. He didn't see heaven as something to be held on to, but he put it aside for a time so he could take on the form of his own creation so that he could die, not just die any death, but a death on the cross, the most horrific form of punishment known to man at that time. Jesus came to endure that. Why? Because he knew at the end every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will kneel, whether in submission or rebellion, but make no mistake, everyone will kneel. And the question is, when you kneel, are you waiting for communion with God or judgment from God? I love how the Apostle Paul described the work of Jesus that's already been done. Look, Ephesians chapter 2, he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. This whole thing that's described by Malachi, this whole work of Jesus, it's all God's part. There's nothing for you to do. God had to come and fix you. Why? So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. He's crafting us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is hand-forming us into an instrument for his glory. And look at how it ends, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Man, we look up and we look in the world and we say, God, where are you? And God's saying, I'm at work in your life this entire time. If you let me, I'm refining you. And it takes time. It takes melting you down over and over and over to remove those impurities that still live within our soul. And then he crafts you, contorts you, chisels away at you to continue to form you into an instrument that day by day is a pure reflection of who he is. What I love about Malachi, just when just when you think God is just ready to smoke everybody, God changes course. Behold, surprise, I'm not gonna bring you what you deserve. I'm gonna bring you what you don't deserve. I'm gonna purify you and refine you so we can have a relationship together. So my question for you is, have you received that? God's given a promise of righteousness. Have you received it? That's different. I'm not asking, do you agree with it? Do you think there's historic viability to whether it's possible or not? Have you received it? Have you welcomed the power of God in your life to melt you down time after time, to purify you of all unrighteousness? and handcraft you into a vessel that he can use for his glory. Have you done that? If you haven't, I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment 
Why don't I give you one more promise that God made at this time? See, he gave a promise of righteousness, but he also gave a promise of judgment. Look at verse five. After he has welcomed people in and saying, I will do all the work. I will accomplish everything. Just let me do it. And I'll be pleased with you. We can have communion. But then there's another then. Verse five, then it's a term of sequence. God says, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna bring righteousness. Then I'm coming back again. And when I come back, I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers. God says, listen, I'm going to give you this promise of righteousness. But if you don't receive it, you need to know something. If you don't allow me to come and cleanse you of the impurities of your soul, I'm coming back to bring judgment. The term judgment used to describe the final decision of court. The first time Jesus came, it's to provide a way for righteousness. The second time he comes, there's no argument period. There's no right to counsel. There is no freedom to defend yourself. When Jesus comes the next time, there is no defense. It's just judgment of impurity. And look, look at some of the lists. It says, he will judge against the sorcerers, against the adulterers. And we're like, yeah, bring it. Go after those perverts. Go after those sorcerers. Absolutely. Bring judgment. But don't stop reading. Look what else. And against those who swear falsely. Against liars. Man, he's equating liars with sorcerers? Do you see that? Against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages. Oh, Brian, I'm not taking advantage of people. I'm being a shrewd business person. It's not how God sees it. Those who oppress the widow, the orphan, those who take advantage of people who are weak and powerless in society. Look at this. Those who turn aside the alien, those who see someone in need and you just walk by. God's going to judge those people the same way as the sorcerers, the same way as the adulterers. Do you see that? And just in case you're still, in case you're like, oh, Brian, I do all that. No worry. How about this? And those who do not fear me, that term fear, everyone who doesn't revere God, all those who have no respect for his power, everyone who chose to rebel against him instead of accepting his mercy and his forgiveness. Listen, God says, I'm, You all are broken. Your view of justice is upside down. You're not the beautiful Penelope. You're not the hero of the city. You're not even an innocent bystander just watching all this happen. You're Bart. And I'm going to come and fix it. I'm coming and I give you the offer, the opportunity. I will redeem you. I will restore you. I will renew you to where we can walk together in communion and I'll be pleased with your life and I will do all of the work. All you need to do is welcome me in and trust me in the process. 
But if you don't let me cleanse you from the impurity, I will judge it myself when I return. I love how it ends. Verse 6. God says, But I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's God saying, you're not going to get what you deserve. You're going to get what I give you. Because I'm God. The only hope you have is God. You can either allow him to transform your life and receive the promise of righteousness or prepare yourself for the promise of judgment. So my question is, where are you? I mean this sincerely. Where are you? In our messed up view of justice, do you recognize your need for a savior? And if you do, have you received it? If you're saying, Brian, I, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know the hopelessness of my future, and I probably don't. But I don't need to because I know the promise of righteousness, and I've experienced the power of God to cleanse me of the judgment of my sin and the constant refinement of life. Have you received the promise of righteousness? And if not, I'm gonna, I wanna help you in just a moment, but I also want a reminder for those of you, those of you here is like, Brian, I've already received the promise of righteousness. I'm good, I'm just waiting for Jesus to return. Here's my question for you. What one area of your life do you still need to allow God to refine? So I think sometimes there's a miscommunication. People think that pastors and elders and church leaders have made it all the way through all the refinement processes and now we're just sitting here waiting for Jesus to return and here's the reality. God is still refining me. And God still needs to refine you. What's one area? One area that you have not allowed God to come in and refine. We all have it. Maybe it's your greed, your controlling spirit, your judgmental heart, your discontentment with your life, your argumentative nature. What is it? One place, one area of your heart, if you've already received the righteousness of God, one area that God still needs to refine in you. The Bible says, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God's still at work, but that refinement process continues until we see Jesus face to face. What's one area God can still refine in you? Let's pray together. Jesus, as a church, we're here, God, many of us, because we believe in your power, we believe in your promise of righteousness. And God, we're thankful for it. God, many of us are grateful that you have saved us from the consequences of our sin and that, God, you are refining something and 
many things in our lives, but God, we come before you and ask that you would continue to do it. So God, we continue to confess to you our greed, our bigotry, our need to control, our lusts, our gossiping tongue, our unrighteous anger, God, our infidelity in marriage or even to you. And God, we as a church ask that you would continue to refine us. And God, we know that you discipline those you love and we know that sometimes your refinement is uncomfortable. We know that it takes time. But God, I ask that you would do that in our lives in our souls. God, in our marriages, restore them, refine them, transform them. God, may our homes continue to be formed in a clearer image of your glory, God, that we might reflect your power. God, we ask you to refine your churches. God, we confess to you that we don't do everything right. So God, will you continue to refine us that as people see our church time over time, they will gain a, gain a clear image of who you are over time. God, refine us, restore us, continue to scoop out the impurities of our soul and fill us with the righteousness of God. And God, I pray for people here God, there's some people here who know they need your righteousness and there's some people here who aren't sure. So God, for those people who have yet to be reunited with you, yet to allow to receive your gift of salvation, God, I pray that you would just burden their heart right now. And God, open their eyes to allow them to see who you are. Open their ears that they would hear your invitation. All you need to do is confess your failures and allow God to restore them. And Jesus, I pray as people lift their brokenness to you, their failures, their fears, Jesus, as they reach out for a new beginning, a fresh start, may you hear them as you've promised. May you forgive them of their brokenness, cleanse them of all all unrighteousness, just as you've promised. And God, may you give them your spirit. Jesus, give them your spirit, just as you've promised you would. And through that, they would have peace that doesn't make any sense even though they're still in the same place in life, God, they're in a different place with you. May they have that peace and that joy that only comes from your spirit. And Jesus, I pray through your spirit, you now guide them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, may you begin to refine them. God, may you remove the fear of it. 
give us the joy of it, knowing that, God, as you're refining us and working in us, God, that's a sign of your love for us. One by one, God, we invite you to transform us, restore us, refine us, renew us. God, we are a a church filled with broken people with only one hope and only one claim that you are a God who not only loves the broken, but you will restore us as well. So God, we ask you for people who have been walking with you for 50 years to someone who is walking with you new today. Refine us, renew us, restore us, transform us, God, that we might not only see you clear day by day, but that people might see you clear day by day because of us. We pray everything in Jesus' name.